Well, good morning, church. Woo! So good to be with all of you guys this morning. Um, as most of you probably know, we are in the process of journeying through our way or our way through uh, this beautiful letter that Paul is writing to Timothy that we know as First Timothy. And as much as it is a beautiful letter, uh, it is also a letter written uh, to a leader that was a disciple of Paul as that leader is being called uh, into a work where he is to bring some truth and redirection and correction to a church that is extraordinarily influential in uh, the world of Paul's day. And so Paul is writing this letter because it is to Timothy uh, with a, a certain level of sort of uh, a summary, if you will. He's not going into a ton of detail to explain what he's trying to say because he assumes Timothy, who has been his disciple, has layers of context for everything he's saying. And he's saying some hard things. I mean, he's just saying some hard things, not to Timothy, but for Timothy to kind of bring to the church. So you can imagine as Timothy's reading this book, he probably felt much like we do reading this book. Like, whoo, that's going to be interesting. So, so we are in a book that uh, is, is bringing to us beauty and bringing to us some, some truths that, that begin to confront the soul of uh, our sort of selves and say, where is it you land in how deeply you trust and believe God? And how much do you land in trusting and believing yourself for the culture around you? This is just the nature of the book we're in. And today, uh, if you've been paying attention at all, we walk into a passage in the book of 1 Timothy that deals with the realities of leadership in the church. And it is a passage, especially tied to the passage we had the privilege of traveling through last week that dealt with all sorts of sensitivities and realities of men and women and women in their place and men in their place. And, uh, you know, you just, oh, no, ah! and now we're walking into leadership and you're like, oh, what's he going to say? Because this passage has been used over centuries in terrible ways to create a separation and to create a misuse and abuse of power and authority and to stifle lives and to do all sorts of crazy, horrible things. And so you're like, oh, I hope we've evolved to a place that better handles. So, so that's where we are. Yay. And actually the truth is it is exactly that. A yay. And here's why. Because as we enter spaces like this, one of the great gifts that um, some of us here have in, in more fullness than others just because we've either been part of Mosaic for a long time, but, but I, because I've had the privilege of being on this journey the whole time, uh, a gift given to me by God, unanticipated. Uh, I, I have a gift that uh, now allows me and we have a, a gift in some progression to this that allows us to enter a passage like this with great confidence. And that gift is context. We have been traveling through the Bible for 17 years in a progression of the historical unfolding story of God from Genesis to where we are in 1 Timothy now. 17 years, we have been progressively growing in our clarity and understanding of the whole context of scripture, 
its context within the historical context of the day as it has progressed over uh, well over a thousand years in our journey and the beauty of context of how each verse or passage or book ties and is connected to the greater context of scripture. That is just something we've been sort of handed as a gift in many ways that we now walk into, I now walk into a book like 1 Timothy and I cannot enter that book without now 17 years of understanding Roman culture and Jewish culture and the reality of the word and the scriptures and what Genesis unpacks and all that God's, it's just all there. And when you enter passages like this, if you dare enter them without context, you are crazy because it's going to take you wherever you want to go, but it's not likely going to land you where God is going. But if you come in with context, it gives you confidence to be able to enter even passages like this to say, God, I can't wait, Spirit of God, for you to show me what is true because I have the confidence of context. Context isn't going to completely determine that study as well, but it gives us a tremendous amount. Have you ever walked into a, a meeting with other people without context? Like, a boss calls you and says, hey, can you come upstairs real quick? And you walk in the room and there's seven people in the room and they're all sitting in chairs and they're all people that are supervisors in your company and you have no context. He's like, hi, what is the feeling you have? Super excited, confident, ready? I'm, I'm ready, whatever you need from me. No, you're immediately anxious and you're like, what is all of this about? Is it a surprise award that you're gonna be given for your diligent work or are you getting fired? Right? So you walk in and you're like, oh, have you ever come home, walk through the door and four of your best friends are sitting there with your spouse? And you're like, is this a surprise birthday party or an intervention? <laughs> because depending on which one it is, this is a very different next hour. When we walk into spaces with no context, it gives us no confidence. But if you got a phone call from your boss and said, hey, are you going to be a Thursday afternoon? Yeah, why? We're having a little award ceremony upstairs for people that have done an incredible uh, job. And I just wanted to make sure you were here Thursday afternoon. I'll, I'll be here. Great. And then Thursday, get the floor. Hey, can you come up to the office? Well, how are you feeling? <laughs> Seven people sitting there, all your supervisors, smiles on their faces. What, what, you're like, I'm, I'm confident. I'm ready. Do you see what context does? Context gives us a confidence that we get to walk into spaces that without context would be nerve wracking. But you come in with context, you're like, okay, let's figure out what's going to go down. First Timothy and this passage sits in a beautiful context that when we understand it will help us navigate into what God is saying here. And we will discover great and unsearchable things beyond what we even thought we would. So where are we in this context? Paul is writing this letter to Timothy to instruct him to instruct the church. That's a context. So he's writing things that he assumes Timothy will know the layers and layers and context for. So we can dig into what is beyond just what is here, but what else Paul would have written and said. He's also writing it into the context of a church that's highly influential and is stepping into a space where some things are not going as they should be. And we find out in this letter, this is part of our context as we enter this passage, that the biggest problem in this church is that some folks 
have uh, taken authority and stepped into oversight in the church by a means that was inappropriate and for a reason that is inappropriate. The means by which they stepped in was to take the early parts of Genesis and to speculate about all sorts of things, creating mysterious myth, bringing it to the table so that people would be awed by their extraordinary intelligence and teaching and with their wealth and power, demanding that people follow them because they are both extraordinary teachers and powerful in their resources. And they're utilizing these two things to step into a position of authority or oversight so that they would have power to be able to be leaders and people follow them. And Paul is writing to Timothy saying, first and foremost, we got to put a stop to that. We got to put a stop to the false teaching. We got to put a stop to the false teachers and all of their reasoning behind what they are doing because it is creating devastation in the church. There's quarreling and arguing and vying for position and everything you would expect to see in the way the world functions. It's happening in the church. And then he has spent some time digging into the implications of this starting point of people taking authority by power and competence, bringing that authority to bear so they can have personal gain and financial security. And the implications to that are that their followers, disciples, are looking to that and saying, got it, that's how it works. And they are now expressing whatever they have to demonstrate their position of power, authority, and strength so that they too can have authority. Men are doing it. Women are doing it in this church. And Paul is speaking to the context of both the men and the women and their particular expressions of how they are vying for position and power. And he speaks to the men and he says, this quarreling's got to stop this. You got to be men of prayer, men of peace, men of quietness. Stop exerting yourselves in this terrible way, lording over things. Stop it. And ladies, men, he's speaking in this church, when you show up in your most expensive outfits to demonstrate the competency and power you have in the world and you're showing up because you are stronger and better and then you are jumping in and exerting yourself as a teacher alongside those teachers to show you the church that in this new world of Jesus, you are as equally powerful as them and you stand side by side. This is not the way to do it. This is not the way to lead. It's got to stop. And now he's going to say, let's talk about the way it should look. That's where we're about to go. We've talked about the way it shouldn't. We're kind of like, uh-huh. But now we're going to talk about the way it should look. Now, before I go, there's one last little piece, and then we'll jump in. As Paul gets ready to instruct Timothy to instruct the church on what this reality of oversight and authority and leadership should look like in the church, we uh, probably start with an expectation that Paul is going to help define when you are a leader, what is a good leader, what is a bad leader. We currently have leaders. They are people of authority, people of oversight, people of power, and they are exerting their leadership in an inappropriate way. Once you have leadership, power, and authority, then the way you exert it should be in a godly manner. That's what we think Paul's about to do because he's instructing the leaders on how to lead as servants, 
But what Paul is actually going to do, inspired by the Holy Spirit, you ready for this? Is he is going to utterly redefine leadership from start to finish so that it has nothing to do with what we thought it was. What? Oh, just wait. So let us enter into this dangerous and terrible passage with great confidence in the fact that God, by his spirit and by his diligence of empowering us to study and understand context in the word, we do that. Now, I'm about to read out of the Bible, uh, 1 Timothy chapter 3, verse 1. And over the recent months, I have on several occasions been reading, and then I either miss words or mispronounce words or skip a sentence, or I kind of pause for a second at a word that should be uh, obvious, like trustworthy. And so my wife has been saying to me over a few months now, look, we all know you can't see what's in the Bible. Uh, You're pretending everybody doesn't know that, but the Bible's getting further and further away from you. So you got two options. Either if you want to keep hiding your weakness, you can get a Bible with bigger print, or you can be godly and mature and just step out in vulnerability and realize it's time, right? So I thought, since we are dealing with a passage that's going to deal with eldership, uh, it is time for me to bring out the big guns. And so from now on, the only thing I'll mispronounce are names in the Bible, because they deserve mispronouncing, because who would call people by these names? I'm telling you. But if it's not names, and it's something like, wait for it, the saying is trustworthy, I can see clearly now. So welcome to a new world. Renault is getting old. I am officially an elder. All right, so chapter three, verse one. Let us begin as Paul comes out of this. This is how it shouldn't work. Men, woman, this is how you shouldn't do it. Specifically men and woman in Ephesus. I'm watching you do it this way. Man, it's got to stop, right? And now in chapter three, verse one, the saying is trustworthy. If anyone aspires to the office of overseer, he desires a noble task. So Paul begins right here saying, let me just, let me just, let me just tell you something trustworthy. This journey to step into oversight, another word for oversight is authority, right? That you are now overseeing or have authority over this, this thing to aspire to this. It is a noble thing. This word noble is beautiful because Paul is sort of defining both what it is and what it should be with the word noble. He's saying, man, if we're going to aspire toward oversight or authority, first of all, let it not be for the reasons it typically is, because those are, those are not noble. But also the very fact that you would aspire to such a thing, once you understand what you are aspiring to, it will be a courageous decision, a noble decision, a decision saying, despite the intrinsic dangers of this reality, despite the fact that I now understand how insane it would be to aspire for that. I yet sense the spirit of God calling me to aspire because I want to serve the church and Jesus in such a way, despite its dangers. I'm going to say a lot like this. You're like, where are you drawing all of that? Don't worry. We're going to travel and you'll see. So I'm going to be speaking in a context I might have that you don't yet uh, making statements like this and just hang with me through this whole thing. You with me so far? Okay. So Paul says, first of all, let's just, let's just say something trustworthy. If you're going to aspire to this authoritative space, the space of overseeing, it is a noble thing. 
that you are doing. And it better be for noble reasons. And once you know what it's about, you're going to understand why it's so noble to do it. Let's take a look. Therefore, an overseer must be above reproach. So what he's saying now is, since this calling to oversight within the body of Christ, we're not talking about outside the church right now. We're talking about in the church because just to pause here for a second, what is the context of this letter specifically as he's writing to Timothy? Remember chapter one, the aim of our charge is love. How did you guys know that answer? Because we already have a context. We already understand anything we travel into in this letter we should always come back to this. The aim of any charge Paul gives in this letter is love. And the reason, Timothy, I'm writing to you is because I can't come right now. So I'm giving you specific instructions on how love translates in the body of Christ so that we would love rightly and love well, love God, love each other and love the world in the way God says. Remember that? So our behaviors, this letter is about behaviors as well, because he says it in chapter three. I want to tell you how to tell the church to behave rightly. Why? Because when we say we believe what Jesus says, we believe the culture of his kingdom, we believe his truth, then we ought to behave in context of and in response to that truth, right? So if we behave in a manner that opposes what we say we believe, we are demonstrating that we don't believe what we say we believe. Then the world will never know we follow Jesus. So he's saying, okay, now listen, this reality of leadership in the church, because it is a noble thing that you need to pursue and it better be for the right reasons and not the wrong ones. You better make sure that anyone that aspires to that place, that they are what? Above reproach. What does this word mean? It means that frankly, you've looked at the entirety of their life. And as much as you can tell, when you talk to people, talk to them, watch them, see them, have longevity with them. You're just like, this person follows Jesus really well. Is above reproach looking for the lack of any imperfection? Of course not. But above reproach is a standard that says, listen, if this person's pattern is consistently and constantly a shaping toward a following of a, a, a moving toward a being transformed into a likeness of Jesus more and more, that their attitude is more and more like Jesus and frankly, quite consistently kind of like him. In other words, you can say, follow this person as they follow Christ. Start there. If they're not that, don't even allow them to begin the thought of being an overseer. Why? Oh, we're going to get there. Because you, you think it's to save us from them, which a little bit it is, but it's actually saving them from themselves and something much worse than themselves. Oh, wait, we get there. We get there. Okay, take a look. Watch. So let's talk about above reproach. This person should be the husband of one wife, sober-minded, self-controlled, respectable, hospitable, able to teach, not a drunkard, not violent, but gentle, not quarrelsome, not a lover of money. So in this little list, and we could take hours here and unpack each one of those things, and that would be wonderful and maybe for another time, but it's not the point of what Paul is doing here. You will notice in this list, two things are showing up. One is the general realities of their beyond reproachness, not just in the context of their little church life, but in the context of what life? 
their whole life, right? I was like, man, uh, there's family life in here. There's outside life in here. Uh, there's internal life in here. He's just kind of listing off some things saying, you ought to look at their whole life and say, wow, they are a faithful person. By the way, husband of one wife, just a side note real quick. Um, there's lots of interpretations on things like this. This is a great example of what exactly does it mean? And you need to dig through context. Best we can understand this based on the original language and what it means. And because of some context later on in First Timothy and in some other places in scripture that I'm not gonna go into right now, uh, it is best understood that this is talking about a person that is faithful to the journey of marriage rather than someone that has never ever had a wife or a husband die and gotten remarried. And you go, can you, no, I'm not gonna explain it now. That is for another time. But it's things like that, that we could go into on every one of these. What it is saying is this, this person ought to be faithful in the way that they are uh, engaged in their family, faithful in the way they're engaged in the community. People's experience of them ought to be that they are grounded and wise and knowledgeable, hospitable and approachable, gentle and kind, that they are not prone toward doing things that will put them in a position where they say stupid stuff and do stupid stuff, like being under the influence of alcohol and being drunkards. He's just kind of going through saying, you, you get the picture of what this person should look like, right? He could add more to the list. He could have left some of these out. He's saying, what does it mean to be beyond reproach? Take a look at their whole life and you should see a general direction of humility, gentleness, kindness, goodness. The fruit of the spirit should be uh, a general presence in this person's life. And if it's not, you should be deeply concerned about why they want to be overseers. Because remember, he's talking in a context of actual people in this actual church who did this actually badly. Why does he put lovers of money on this? The false teachers that are currently the overseers of this church teaching falsely are doing it for what? Financial gain, because they care about what? Money. So he's actually, isn't it beautiful how the context of what he decides to put on this list isn't just random or deeply inspired by some elevation of things. He's just like, You've seen what happens when people who have a love for their own gain, a pride and a conceitness and want what they want and they care about money. You saw how that goes. How'd that go? Not so well. So when you pick people for this, man, what I mean by beyond reproach is this. Now look what he does next. He says, he must manage his own household well with all dignity, keeping his children submissive. For if someone does not know how to manage his own household, how will he care for God's church? Now, this is fascinating. And I didn't read with my glasses and that's why I went slow and I was like, oh my gosh, I can't see. So it's a habit. I'm just gonna have to keep going. They're laying right here. If you hear me stumbling through words, say glasses, Renee, put them on. It's okay. We, try, we, we love you. Um, okay, so. What, what is, look, look what he's doing. Remember in the passage right before, as he was talking about how this shouldn't go down, he brought into the equation, Adam and Eve. Remember that? So he stepped back into Genesis and a beginning point there. So here he moves from beyond reproach. Here are some character qualities they should and should not have. And now he says, and by the way, they really should manage their family well. And he even, he's even specific. He's like, 
You know, they, they should make sure that their children, for example, uh, are submissive. These are passages that have misused, been misused in their understanding. But what is, what is God getting at? You're going to watch in a second how he ties the reality of Adam and Eve and the whole foundation of how we function as a body into this in a second. So submissive children. I'm going to say something right now. It's not about children, about parents. So children, relax. You're like, oh, here we go. Just chill for a second, okay? This is much bigger than any of that. I'm going to say something that I hope as you, as you grab a hold of this, that this over time embeds deeply in your soul because your greatest freedom on this planet awaits in many ways as these kinds of truths embed themselves. Your life, your story isn't about you. Just hold on to that thought for a second. And you're like, oh, I know I'm a Christian. Oh no, you don't know. The only thing that changes often in Christianity is that we divert from who's responsible for a better story for ourselves, not us, but now God. That, that God is the participant in your story and you deserve him to give you the very best one, even if suffering is included, right? But actually at the end of the day, wait for it, we are created beings created for the purpose of the creator, not for our own purposes or his purpose for us. Anything that he does for us, is for us, isn't actually about us. It's about him. And when you were made, you were made, I was made, humanity was made to do what? What was our foundational created purpose? To glorify God by bearing his image. Imaging him, displaying him. So wait for it, watch this. Whatever role you have in life, whatever identity is yours, whatever reality you stand in, whatever workplace you have or family role you have, man or woman, child or parent, husband or wife, a master or servant, rich or poor, whatever it is, guess what? Those roles are given you to display a part of who God is. It is not given you so you can have a better or a worse role a more important or lesser important one. So watch this. Why does God say in the 10 commandments, I mean, look at this thing, don't kill people. Don't have adulterous relationships. Don't steal other people's stuff. And you're like, you check, check, check. Children, obey your parents. I mean, have you ever called 911? Uh, excuse me. Uh, could you send a, a cop over immediately? Why? One of my kids is not obeying. I mean, if, if this was a murder, I'd call you. If someone stole my stuff from my house, I'd call you. If I walked into an adulterous reality, I might call you. So if the kid one is on the Ten Commandments, I feel like that belongs. My kid's not obeying. Can you come over right away and arrest them? We, we don't do that. Why? Because uh, children obeying isn't like, you know, murdering. Why would God put that on the list? Is it because he needs kids to obey and he wants them to, and he needs parents to be safe from their children's disobedience? No, it's because he created parents and children to display the beauty between him being father and us being his children. And when we as parents behave toward our children in a way that is opposed to the way that God calls us to, then we are not displaying him well, and we are not living in our purpose. And when our children or we as children do not engage in obeying our parents well, then we are not displaying God well. And so consistently in this space, our role isn't about what we want or should get out of this equation. It's about what part we get to play in making God beautiful. And so we get to that. Can you imagine if our children live their lives 
where every time we said anything to them and we're like, oh my gosh, do this. And they're like, oh, I I don't want to do it. They grow up and we grow up forgetting that if we obey God or disobey God, that's a big deal. So do you see how a relationship like this isn't about the child obeying and a checkbox for becoming an elder or deacon? He's saying, if you can't manage your home well and it's not being managed as a shepherd of your home, then what makes you think you can roll into the church and manage that well as a father of the church or overseer of the church? This now also hearkens to the foundational realities of what we are made for. Adam was created in the garden. Every step before Adam, when God was done creating, what did he say? This is, this is really good. Huh. What I created this for, done, check. I made the heavens and the earth, they display my glory. I made the fish in them, this displays my glory. Creation is singing of my glory. And then he creates Adam, the, the pinnacle of his creative expression of himself. And he says, now I will create one who will bear my image like no other part of creation. He creates Adam. And Adam is there and he's hanging out with God. And then God says of Adam, what? This is, this is not good. It's not complete. It is not good for what? Man to be alone. And we obsessed people with love interpret God's meaning as we have a lonely Adam and that's inappropriate. Adam deserves a playmate. And so God makes Adam a playmate and look, it's good now. Adam is complete. Eve is complete because what completes us is not God, it's other humans. And all of you are confused because you're like, I don't, is this true? I, but what I'm doing is I'm showing you what we actually believe about what God meant. He didn't mean that. Was Adam lonely? Oh, no, yes, I, I don't know. When I die, I'm going to go up to Adam and I'm going to say to Adam, hey, right before God said, hey, it's not good for man to be alone. Were you lonely? And you know what Adam's going to say to me? I can say this to you with absolute certainty. And here's why, because I know who God is. Adam's going to say, you're joking, right? I had a relationship with God that was complete without any hindrance, total. And he is my everything. Like you said, he was yours and he indeed was. I didn't, I didn't need Eve. I was good. God did not say it was bad for Adam to be alone because Adam needed something. God said that it's me speaking. Sorry, Siri, I apologize for that. God said that it is not good for Adam to be alone because humanity cannot adequately display God well if we are alone because none of us have what it takes to display God. So what he said is if I've created something that's gonna bear my image, it is gonna need to be in community because I am Trinity in community and it's going to need to have distinction so that each part of the people play a role, not the completeness of a role. So we, listen to me, cannot ever make God known properly unless we do it together and unless we all play different parts because none of us have all the parts. And from that point on, everything in scripture displays this way. All the way into the New Testament where God says, you wanna know what this thing is, the church? It is my what? My body. And, And my body has how many parts? Lots of parts. And each of you are how many of them? Yes, one or two. None of you are the whole thing. It's my body, not yours. And and some of you are the pinky. And some of you are the spleen. Some of you are the foot. And if you all begin to run around and say, how come I don't get to be the mouth? That one's fun. 
You're missing the entire point. You are buying into a philosophy of this world that says one part of the body is more important than the other. Now, we know the heart's more important perhaps than the pinky, because if you cut the pinky off, you'll be okay. But if you, your heart stops, you die. So you're like, well, Runa, there are more important parts. Well, Jesus actually does a great job with that. He says, just so you all know, I am the head of this body, like the whole thing, and I control the life of this body. None of you can make it dead or none of you can make it alive. But if any one of you don't play your part, the part I've given you, then who suffers? The whole body suffers. So your job and mine, your privilege and mine is not to say, what part have you made me for? And I want the other part. It's to say, do I get a part? Yes, you do. Just tell me which one it is. I'm so thrilled. And if you're the finger, be the finger really, really well. And if you're the spleen, go spleen. But if the spleen behaves like a pinky finger, we in deep trouble, right? So it's, it's embedded. And what he's saying here now is he's saying this, listen. Timothy, you know how this works. You know Adam and Eve and, and the created purpose and duality of expressing God. And what is our whole purpose? It's about expressing God. So here's the deal. If a husband is made in the husbandry role to have oversight in the family, to lead the family well, I am now going to mirror that into the body of Christ. So let's make sure that we understand this person who I'm bringing into a place of oversight is a person that already displays humble and beautiful oversight in their home because I'm mirroring something. Okay, watch, watch where this goes now. Take a look. Oh, thank you. Little blind. Okay. He must not be a recent convert. Hmm. Now watch why. Here, here's, where it gets, here's where it gets awesome. We are like, oh, go for oversight. It's going to be awesome. Let's take a look at what happens when you pursue this noble task. He must not be a recent convert or he may become puffed up with conceit. What happened to these leaders that were stepping into oversight and power so they could have the leadership they wanted and get what they wanted. They did it out of pride and conceitness of heart and they were being conceited in it. And what Paul says is when you as a person aspire to a position of authority or oversight with this position of authority oversight comes power and power is deadly to the human soul because it makes us think more of ourselves than we ought. And it causes us to become conceited and want to use the power for ourselves instead of for God. And if you're going to step into this and you are a recent convert and don't understand the gospel well and don't love Jesus deeply and don't understand what it means to follow him and don't understand your value according to him, you step in this role before you know it, you will be conceited. And when that happens, it is not only deadly for the church. Wait for it. Take a look. Watch this that he may not be a recent convert or he may become puffed up with conceit and fall into the condemnation of the devil. All of you that have aspired for authority in the church should have just gone, wait, I, I, I pull my vote. I pull, I, I, I'm, no, no, thank you. If you step into this and you start finding yourself buying into the fact that you have power and you become conceited, you walk into the condemnation of the devil. Paul doesn't mince words here. He's not like, God will be a bit disappointed. Please try not to do that. He's like, you will be under the condemnation of the devil. Wait for it. Moreover, he must be well thought of by outsiders so that he may not fall into disgrace, into a snare of the devil. Now, we understand from this passage what Paul is saying about stepping into leadership 
because there is authority tied to it and oversight. And then we're going to lead in the church. We now understand that if you're going to do that, there's danger in that because of the power. But he hasn't yet redefined leadership for us. Watch what he does next. Because I'm going to, I'm going to tell you guys that what we're going to discover in this passage is that the greatest flaw we have bought into as a culture and as humans for a long time is that leadership is connected to oversight or authority. Let me say that again. Leadership is connected to oversight and authority. In our world, that is true. In God's world, it is not. You're going to see that happen in a second. The Roman culture believed that if you're going to be a leader, you become a leader by having power and authority because then you are over someone and that makes you a leader. That's why this passage, when we talk about oversight and we say, uh, can these people have oversight in the church? Can these people not? We use the word leadership. This is a passage about leadership in the church. It is a passage about leadership in the church, but it is not defining leadership by the fact that you gain authority. Leadership is much bigger than that. Take a look at what he does next. I know that's a little like, what do you mean? Watch the next ver uh, verse, verse eight. Deacons likewise must be dignified. We read that sentence. Now we're in elders, that's overseers, pastors, elders. That's the, the category we were just in, oversight. And how dangerous that can be, have someone really qualified because otherwise they become conceited and believe too much of themselves and misuse the power. Now he's going to deacons. What is the translation of the word deacon? It is the word servant. In, in this culture, when you read that sentence, it would say, likewise, servants do this. How did the Romans think about servants? Did they think servants were dignified? No, they didn't. Did, they, did anyone aspire to be a servant? No, 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 no one aspired. Why not? Because servants were slaves. Servants were under someone's authority. Servants were vulnerable. Servants were, were at the mercy of the hands of somebody else. The people that were safe, that were secure, that were the people that were in power. But if you were a servant, what were you aspiring to not be? A servant. So dignity and servitude did not fit in the same sentence. And look what Paul does. He says, likewise, servants or deacons must be dignified. Look at this. Not double-tongued, not addicted to much wine, not greedy for dishonest gain. They must hold the mystery of the faith with clear conscience. In other words, they must have a deep clarity of the gospel. They must live in it and believe it. If they don't, don't have them become servants. Look what Paul's doing. How seriously did he take overseers? Very, so don't let anyone become an overseer unless they're what? Really, really mature. Now he's going to servants. And what you'd think he'd say is this, servants, if you need servants in the church, find anyone. Who cares? They're under the authority of the, of the important people that are mature. But he's saying this, be very careful who you choose as servant. Servants need to be mature and dignified. They need to be gospel-centered and clear on what they understand. Look at this, look what he says. They that, uh, let them also be tested first. Then let them serve as servants if they prove themselves blameless. He's doing something profound here. He is elevating the importance of the servant role to the same importance of the overseer role. And he's saying, when you choose overseers who need to lead, Choose them carefully so they'll lead well. When you're choosing servants who need to serve and lead, 
choose them well. He's defining servants here as people who are, follow me as I, I follow Christ kind of people. Pick leaders to be your servants. Pick leaders to be your overseers. Those are two different roles, but how important are the two roles? Equally so in whose kingdom? Watch, watch. Look what he says next. <clears throat> Their wives likewise must be dignified, not slanderers, be sober-minded, faithful in all things. Let deacons each be the husband of one wife, managing their children and their own households well. For those who serve well as deacons gain a good standing for themselves and also great confidence in the faith that is in Christ Jesus. That little translation that says, and likewise their wives, the word for wives in the original language and the word for woman in the original language is the same word. So you can translate it either way, wives or woman. So it could say also, likewise, woman, uh, you need to live to the same standards if you're going to step into this incredible role of leadership, uh, being a deacon or servant. And so we understand this passage. We understand this passage as we study it to show us something profound to say, as we talk about what this reality in the church should look like of us playing our different roles and our different positions to be able to display the glory of the gospel and the glory of God, you're all gonna have different roles, different parts, different positions. Whichever one you play, you better be gospel grounded, otherwise you'll play it badly. So how will an overseer play it badly? They will be conceited, thinking too much of themselves and start using the reality of their oversight position, which gives them power and use the power badly. They will lead badly as an overseer because they will be self-centered. But the deacon or servant, if they also buy into the cultural ideology that says leadership is when you get authority because authority is power and power is what gives you leadership, they're gonna want what? authority all the time. So they might serve for now. They might be a, a servant for now, but what internally is happening all the time? I actually want to be a what? An overseer so I can have what? Power so that I can be a leader so that I can be safe. If you are in your role servant, in other words, non-overseer, men or women for that matter, and you step into this beautiful calling and you're not mature you're gonna have the same problem in your soul as the overseer who's conceited, is coming from a different side of the coin. And will you then display the beauty of the glory of Jesus well and make the kingdom well? No. See, what Paul is doing is he's saying, you all think leadership is about position, authority, and oversight. So if you can't have that as part of your role, then you can't be a leader. It's like leadership is what you are doing and how you're doing it in everything that you do. Leading ministries, leading people, teaching people. We've already established from last week that this misuse of saying certain people can teach in the church and not teach in the church, uh, teach that, that, that context was wrong. But in this position of eldership, it is saying the, those who oversee like what I'm reflecting in the home, that is for the men in the church that step into and they are to bring oversight, choose them carefully. Those who step into this beautiful leadership of, of being a deacon or servant, man, the men doing that, do that rightly. The woman doing that, do that rightly. How? By being deeply mature. Now, when I get to this part, see, this is where it all gets fun, doesn't it? All gets fun because we're like, oh, I see where this is going. There's a part that certain people can't have. That's what you understand this to mean. 
Yes, we do understand it to mean that for deep and beautiful reasons of gospel clarity, but watch this. The reason it feels so hard to us, hard to those of you that sit and say, mm, darn it, now I'm, I, I'm, I'm left out of an equation that's important. And the reason that it feels either hard or fun for those who get this is because we, like the cultures before us, deeply misunderstand what matters on this planet and what leadership is and what it means to follow Jesus. In Mark chapter 10, this little event takes place that I just absolutely love. Jesus is hanging out with his disciples and two of them, James and John, come to him and they say, can we, can we talk for a minute? And Jesus is like, sure, let's, let's go chat. And this is what they do. Mark chapter 10, James and John said to Jesus, listen, when, when you set up your kingdom, when you set up your kingdom and you establish your throne in Jerusalem, would you mind if James and I sit at your right hand and your left hand? I can even imagine the conversation with John going, can I sit at your right and James on your left? And then James goes, hold on, we talked about this. I was on the right. Uh, the right feels more important than the left. But they asked this question, do you mind if we sit on your left and right? Why were they asking that question? Because they wanted what? Authority, because authority gives them power and power makes them leaders and then they are safe. And this is what Jesus says to them in response to that ask. The way he does this is absolutely beautiful and just like Jesus. In Mark chapter 10, I'm paging there quickly. Mark chapter 10, listen to what he says. He has this conversation with them. And then he says this in verse 42. And Jesus called them to him and said to them. So he calls the other guys around. He says, okay, let's talk about leadership and let's talk about authority and power. You know that those who are considered rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them and their great ones exercise authority over them. So here's what he says. How does it work in the world, boys and girls? He's saying to his people, how does it work? We know how it works with the Gentiles, the Americans, the Romans, the white, pick, pick a culture. Here's how it works. Those who have power are safe and lorded over the, those that don't and the great ones lord over everyone. Are we all clear on how it works? Okay, great. Now look at what he says next. But it shall not be so among you. Jesus speaking and saying the way leadership works in the culture and authority works in the culture and oversight works in the culture and our bent on which one we want, how should that be here? Not like that. It shall not be so among you. Why not? Look what he says. Redefines leadership completely. But it shall not be so among you. But whoever would be great among you must be your servant. He didn't say servant leader. He didn't say, first get into leadership and authority and then behave like a servant. He said, the greatest among you is what? Is the servant. And as though he knew we would be like, he means servant leader. Look what he says. Look what he says. But whoever would be great among you must be your servant. And whoever would be first among you must be slave to all. He just said, in my kingdom, if you aspire to serve everyone, be servant and slave to all. That is leadership. That is leadership. And whether you're serving everyone is through the position of serving in its active action or in the position of overseeing, it is an irrelevancy because your attitude in either of those spaces should be what? Slave to 
all. For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. What Jesus said to his disciples is, please, I beg you, don't define leadership like the world does. Don't behave like the world does in it. Don't want authority because it has power because that makes you leader. In my kingdom, the leaders are those who see either of those roles as an opportunity to be the servant and slave to all. I am Jesus, the greatest leader of all. I don't mean I am. This is Jesus speaking, just in case. And look, what did Jesus say? Paul wrote in Philippians, let our attitudes be the same as that of Christ, who, though he had all authority, oversight, emptied himself of his rights and prerogatives, and even to the point of death, enslaving himself to, de himself to death so that he can save us. When we as a people stop equating our value to the roles we get to play or don't get to play, the parts we get to play or don't get to play, and we stop defining importance and leadership by power and authority, we will begin to live in freedom because we will neither think too much of ourselves if we have authority, nor too little of ourselves if we don't, but we will both think rightly of ourselves as Jesus tells us, slaves and servants to all, and whichever role we play, we play it because he asked us to and we're thrilled to play a role. The way I have thought about life for a long time now, I have a picture in my head and I hope this picture might be helpful to you in setting you free as I am being more and more set free from the obsession of getting to play a specific part rather than just any part. We, as Americans, as Westerners, have been bred to be gods and kings. We have been bred to be gods and kings. You are told from the time you're born, you can be anything you want. Your de destiny is yours alone to decide. Don't ever let anyone tell you what you can't be. Don't, we are bred to be gods and kings. I am a god and a king and nobody gets to define for me what is and what isn't. For a season, my parents are kind of bossy, but then I get out of that craziness and then I strive to be my own boss. And if I'm not, I strive to usurp the boss's power as quickly as possible because I am a god and a king. But the Bible defines us as children and servants, not gods and kings. In fact, it says you're not gods for sure and not kings. And even if you are a king on this little planet, the kings are like flowers. They come, oh, nice little king. Then they fade and die. So you, you feel like a king, but there's only one king and he is the king of kings. We are not gods and kings. We are servants. If we are servants, and that is who we are, who we were made to be, what is the joy of a servant? To serve. And to serve who? The master, the king. That's actually the purpose of a servant. We are so obsessed with purpose, aren't we? I want a job that feels purposeful. I want to have a purpose in life. I want to do purposeful things. Do you know who thinks like that? Gods and kings. Because when gods and kings do things and they don't have purpose, it's a waste of time. But servants don't think like that. What is the only purpose a servant thinks about? serving the master. And if the master needs something and the master happens to ask me as one of the servants, how thrilled am I? Super thrilled. Why? Because that is my purpose. So here's how I think about my life, how I want my life to be. Not always like this. I'm just as insane as the rest of you and just as captivated by the stupidity of this planet as the rest of you on certain days. But when I am, I try to come back here. You see, 
if I were uh, called into the castle of my king, Jesus. And he said, hey, Renaud, here's what I want you to do. I want you to roll outside and I want you to walk around the wall of my kingdom and I want you to do it naked singing Kumbaya. That's just how I think of it in my head. So sorry about that. But it just, I kind of brought myself as low as I could. And I'm like, okay, I'm outside the gates, walking around uh, the castle. I'm naked and I'm singing, Kumbaya, my Lord, Kumbaya, Kumbaya, my Lord, Kumbaya. And then you show up, American, Westerner. And you come up to me and you're like, hey, Renault, what are you doing? And my first thought is, is it not obvious? Like I'm naked and I'm singing Kumbaya. So I say it to you since you apparently don't know. Well, I'm naked and I'm singing Kumbaya. And you're like, that wasn't really my question. <laughs> Was it now? Because you can see I'm naked and singing Kumbaya walking around the castle. What is the real question in your little heart? Why? Why are you doing this? This is stupidity. It has no purpose. You're walking around. I mean, is this something I don't know? And you're like, Kumbaya, my Lord, Kumbaya. Uh, and, and I say, why? And I say, I say. Be, because my king asked me to. That's, that's why I'm doing this. Now you're a Westerner, so you're still unsatisfied. What is your next question? Well, why, why did he ask you to do this? As though you believe that I not only had the right, but that I had the responsibility to ask him why he would ask me to do something this stupid before I did it. Because I am my own person and I have dignity and I deserve to know if you're gonna have me walk around naked outside your kingdom and sing Kumbaya, you better explain yourself. Isn't that how we have been bred? Have we not even bred our children this way? If I tell my children to do something, they have every right to ask why and demand. And then as they ask why and demand, well, why would you ask me to do that? I want you to go to bed at 10.30. Whoa, that's stupid. Why would you have me go to bed at 10.30? And then what my job is as an American parent is to say, well, let me get you some scientific articles to help you understand how important sleep is so that you will see why this really matters to you. And if you read those articles and you can begin to grasp the deep reasons as to why I'm doing this for your good and you agree with those reasons, then and then finally you will say, you know what, you're right, 10.30 does sound good. And instead of my child behaving like the space they were given to behave and me like a parent, I become the advisor and they become the king and God. And this is how we're bred. So now I come here and you say to me, well, why did Jesus have you walk around naked singing Kumbaya? And what you're expecting me to say is, well, that's a good question. I actually asked him and he gave me these three articles and showed me how in doing this, I'm going to bring the walls down and then it's going to be awesome. And I'm going to change the world. So I did it not because my king asked me. I did it because what he told me was the reason made sense to me as well. See, that is not what I want to say to you. What I want to say to you is I have no idea why he asked me to do this, but I do know him. And if he asked, he has purpose. And the fact that he asked me is mind blowing because I don't have the right or the privilege or should not have the right or privilege to play any part in the story of this king. But yet, he lets me walk around naked singing Kumbaya for some awesome purpose that I have no idea about. But I do know him. What would it be like if instead of entering all the spaces of scripture, we entered in like, oh, he better tell me something I like and he better give me what I deserve. But we entered and say, do I get to do anything? And if he says, yes, you do, we say, 
<gasps> what is it? And whatever he says it is, we go do that thing with all of our heart. Is it oversight? I'll do it, and I'll do it with all my heart, even though I'm scared to death that power will corrupt me, and I'll turn into a psycho and misuse it and abuse everybody and be, be condemned uh, by the devil. It said it all in there. Wow, I don't want to do it. This is how I need you know. I'm in, I'm in. Is it, is, it, is it serving in this way or serving that way? Is it husband or wife? Is it, is it child or whatever my role? Just whatever you say it is, tell me what it is. Tell me how it's done best. And I'm just thrilled to walk around naked and sing Kumbaya. And when people say, why do you tolerate a place that doesn't allow you to be whatever you want? I say, because you don't know my king. He's already made me everything I need to be. And my value and my purpose and my future and my well-being, everything is already settled in his work for me. Anything else I get to do at this point is just thrilling and above and beyond. Even naked singing Kumbaya. May we become a people who come to places like this and instead of asking why he lets and doesn't let, that we ask instead, gosh, God, I see my part because you've told me in scripture what it is. Show me how to do it well and I'll do it as well as I can. And if I lose my head, either as servant or overseer, and my leadership is derailed either as servant or overseer, would you be gracious enough to bring me back to this soul truth? I do everything I do for the glory of my king and because he asked and what he asked and why he asked and what I do and what I don't get to do is irrelevant to me. It's just relevant that I get to participate in any way in his grand story, any way that he sees fit, whether he explains himself to me or not. That is our freedom. Let's pray. God, thank you so much for this beautiful letter in which you so beautifully continue to use Paul as he speaks to Timothy, who will then correct Ephesus and put it into scripture for us. Continue to show us not just simply how to behave, but the deep truths that our culture have embedded in us that are false and the deep truths that you have declared in your word that are true. God, as we enter this little space here, remind us that you, Jesus, when asked, can, can, can we sit at your right and left hand? Because we, we want to be the, the guys right next to you in power and authority, leading visibly, that you said in my kingdom it shall not be so. My people shall not behave this way because in my kingdom, those who aspire to be slave to all, they are great leaders. And then God, may we take that and whatever space you call us into to lead, whether to lead through submission or lead through oversight, to lead as parent or lead as child, to lead as husband or lead as wife in the way you've had each of those roles lead, would you remind us that each of us have a part to play because none of us can display you fully without the others. And when we play the part you've given us, the body does not suffer. But when we try to play the parts you haven't, the body suffers. God, give us foundationally a new way of seeing our purpose, not as doing something purposeful, but as doing whatever the purposeful king asks and doing it with all of our hearts. We do love you, and we're so grateful that you let us play any part at all. We don't deserve it. Help us to love it 
whatever the part is you give us. Pray in Jesus' name. Amen.